Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits of Compliance podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're on the podcast to break down some of the interesting and challenging issues that confront employers with respect to compliance. And Suzanne, we are now officially in election season. We have right. Democratic National Convention going on as we speak. And so we thought a great topic today would be to uh, go over the Joe Biden um, health care policy and what we might expect if a Biden-Harris ticket is successful this fall. So give us some background here on the policy points with respect to their plan. Yeah, and I will say, you know, we pulled this from Biden's uh, website. And so there may be additional information out there that we don't find in the details. We've gotten some details otherwise outside of that as well, just from other comments that they have made. Um, but right now it's obviously, as you would expect, somewhat light on details. Um, and, but we can talk at least from a high level about the policy direction. Um, the uh-huh. first thing that I want to talk about is, is the addition of a public option. So he would add a public option. Again, few details. We've seen various proposals about public options over the past year. And, you know, certainly Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke had endorsed specific legislation. Most of the other uh, options were just really in theory without a lot of detail. And so I think that Biden certainly, um, when it, you look at polling, which has consistently shown that Americans reject the idea of a public option by abolishing the private system, he, and he's certainly expressed it building on an interest in building on Obamacare. I think we can assume that his public option would live alongside or compete with the private market instead of replace it. And so Um, Also, we can assume that it's going to be something different than Medicare because he does have some Medicare expansion, which we'll discuss in a moment. So we can assume this is something different. So what does it mean? Um, It likely means that there is a government insurance plan that you can buy within the the construct of the existing healthcare marketplace. So you go into healthcare.gov, you want to select your healthcare plan. One of the options alongside the private insurers would be a federally run public option. So the interface would be very similar to what someone would be going to to select their marketplace plan at this point, right? That is my assumption. That is certainly my assumption. I think part of the the criticism with this is it's not really doing anything to restrain the growth of healthcare costs, which is really what we're facing and and really the driver of what is is causing uh, the healthcare cost to increase is really uh, the cost of delivery rather than the payment system. Um, But one of the ways in which the government would uh, reduce premiums is that they pay providers less. And so that's, that part is pretty well established. Uh, they would make it some sort of Medicare equivalent. There are, of course, issues with paying providers less. And there's been several studies that show the impact on the provider market when there's going to be a less in, loss in revenue due to a public option, uh, certainly if it was uh, completely replacing the private system. But ultimately, you want to look at how hospitals are speaking to this public option, the impact it will have on them. Um, it, it, will it cause any hospitals to pull out or uh, of the system entirely? Will it cause any impact on providers wanting to enter into the market? 
Will it impact access of care overall by having uh, providers that whose revenue will now be impacted by a public option? So just something that you want to watch. What we don't know is whether the public option would be self-sustaining, meaning would it be paid for only by the premiums paid by those who are enrolled in public option, or would it be subsidized by the federal government via, of course, a taxation of some sort on uh, U.S. citizens who pay taxes? So would I, if I'm enrolled in an employer-sponsored market, be subsidizing the public option for those that decide to enroll in that option? Um, something, again, we don't have details on, but it's something to watch is how will that be funded? What are some of the advantages? What are some of the things maybe we'll hear Biden or Harris talk their talking points as they try and push this? Well, I think one of the things that they will push is that they can offer a plan with lower premiums. And in part, that's going to be due because uh, the government's not out there to make a profit, whereas obviously the private insurance does have a profit motive. And so presumably they can lower premium costs, not only through um, paying providers a lower amount, but also by just taking into account that there won't be a profit element added on to the cost. And so um, another advantage would be that individuals could port their coverage if as they switch jobs. So they could take it along with them, no matter what kind of job that they were working in. And then third, you may hear that it's going to reduce the uninsured population. And that part, I think, is brought into question by the government's own scoring of a public option. Back in 2013, the Congressional Budget Office which is uh, allegedly neutral, um, scored a public option when added to the ACA marketplace. And they found that, uh, they estimated that it, it would have minimal effects on the number of people who were uninsured. And so therein really lies the problem is you have to look at the details and see what type of impact we're hoping for and whether in fact um, going, you know, doing through this enormous effort will actually get us to the result that we want. You mentioned, I mean, creating this public option is very complex. Um, talk a little bit more about some of those challenges, uh, particularly with premium rates and uh, self-finance systems. Right. So I mentioned we don't know if it's going to be self-sustaining. And, and the challenge with sustaining actuarially sound premium rates, um, you can look just to Medicare system itself. Back in 1988, um, there was the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act that was passed by Congress. And it was, it was their last attempt to really create a fully self-financed system. Um, and if you look at that program, the way that they were doing that, first of all, they were eliminating Part A copayments for that extended hospital stay. They were adding an out-of-pocket cap on Part B expenditures, and then they created a prescription drug program. And the financing for all of that came through income-based premiums. So your premiums were... Uh, amount was tied to your income. There was an increase in Part B premiums, and then there was a new premium added for prescription drugs. Um, and what they found was the idea that the financing must come just from the premiums and not from taxes was a challenge because they had to continually increase the amount of the premiums to cover their cost. And as premiums increased, you saw political pressure growing. And in fact, there was a famous scene from 1989 when the House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dan Rostenkowski was mobbed by a group of angry senior citizens. So you don't want to get in the way of senior citizens and their Medicare program. And he had to flee away in a car. And so what we saw is that after that, the Deficit Reduction Act of 1989 repealed most of the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act. And so just 16 months in, um, after it was passed, we saw that it was basically disbanded. Wow, this sounds like a movie scene almost, these uh, angry senior citizens. That's right. 
don't get in the way of their Medicare. That's right. All right. So tell us briefly about some of the state experiences that you mentioned. Yeah. So I think looking at state um, experiences is helpful and really should be studied in great detail to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So we can look to the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, Tennessee, for example, used its Medicaid program to expand coverage to its uninsured. Its total an annual budget for TennCare increased from $2.64 billion in 1994 to more than $8.5 billion in fiscal year 2005. And essentially, there was no additional, uh, the number of, of participants who were enrolled did not increase at all. And so they brought in a consulting firm, McKinsey and Company. They were asked to evaluate the financial sustainability of TenCare and to make recommendations going forward. And what they, their report, when it was issued in late 2003, concluded that TenCare was not financially viable and that the state ended up having to remove about 190,000 participants. And they had to impose limits on the number of prescription medications that were offered um, and just really reduce some other benefits in order to keep TenCare uh, viable. So that's, you know, that's one state. Uh, you mm -hmm. can also look to around that same time to Kentucky. In 1994, they enacted the Kentucky Healthcare Reform Act. And again, it included a public option. And its goal, again, was universal coverage and more affordability. Um, but what they found is that the problems actually worsened. And so it's true that, you know, there were some individuals who were very sick and were able to purchase healthcare insurance when they couldn't previously but the cost of health insurance skyrocketed so much that it forced many people out of uh, coverage altogether. And so the result was by January of 1996, there were fewer Kentuckians covered by insurance than before the reform was passed. What you found was by 1996, um, most of the insurers had pulled out of that market. And so you only had Blue Cross remaining in Kentucky care. And the plan had basically bled the state treasury dry. And so eventually that public option was scrapped. Wow. So those are two states sort of in the heartland of the country with Kentucky and Tennessee. What about on the coast? Because sometimes it makes a difference, right? The populations are a little bit different depending where you are in the country. But I understand Maine, Hawaii, and Washington all attempted this as well in some form. Tell us a little bit about those states. In 2003, Maine set up Dorigo Choice, which was with the goal of insuring about 130,000 uninsured Mainers in five years and 36,000 in the first year alone. Um, and the idea was that the more people that were enrolled in the program, the more savings in healthcare costs overall and health insurance premiums. And that's often what we hear is that you add this public option and you're going to help healthcare costs overall. You're going to drive down health insurance premiums. Um, they were going to provide competition with this subsidized insurance. And finally, they hoped that it would just stabilize the insurance market altogether. But what they found was that they never insured more than 15,000 people at any one time. And there was no real savings in the system. The funding came from a tax on main health insurance carriers. And then they added a tax on beer, wine, and soda. And then they ended up going to a straight tax on health insurance claims, but it was just never enough money. And in fact, at one point, they had to borrow $25 million from the state's general fund. So ultimately, the program lasted about 10 years, and then it was scrapped. So again, just um, some more challenges. I won't go through any detail in Hawaii, but in 2009, they created Kiki Care for the uninsured children. And um, what they found was within seven months, that program was out of money and had to be dismantled. So just some challenges. It's not an easy um, thing to solve, although it's a noble thing to try to solve, but it's, it's just very complex. 
Um, if we look more recently, we can watch uh, the efforts in the state of Washington. And I think what's important here to watch is how the negotiations occurred. Um, but it passed legislation in 2019. It established a public option that will be open and available in 2021. And I think what's important here is that when you look at uh, the idea of setting reimbursement rates at Medicare level, they got significant pushback and eventually had to result in a cap of 160% of Medicare rates with a floor of 135% of Medicare rates for primary care providers. So they started out wanting to make it at Medicare rates. They got significant pushback from the provider community. They did have to increase that amount. Um, now, I will say that it's still lower because in Washington, the reimbursement rates for individual market plans is currently around 175% of Medicare rates. So presumably, when they come in with lower provider payments and you know, not having the, the profit motive on top of that, they should be able to come in with some lower premium costs for that public option in Washington. So we'll watch Washington, see how that goes. I will say one significant difference is that um, rather than it being administered by the state, it is actually administered by a private health insurer. So it's really more state sponsored than it is state run. Um, so they're still bringing, you know, the private market into play with actually administering the program, but one to watch indeed. Yeah, for sure. So let's move on to another key piece of Biden's proposal, and that is lowering the Medicare age to 60 down from where it is currently at 65. Right. And so a couple of things I wanted to point out about this. And, and again, there is some support um, for um, allowing more people to buy into Medicare. There's a couple of assumptions with this that I want to dig into a bit because he one of the things that Biden says is that it will reflect reality with the current uh, crisis, the pandemic, and in, in which older Americans are affected by this. And what we find is when you look at um, some of the details of the pandemic and how it has really impacted that age group. So again, there's few details on this program, except that the new federal cost associated with it would be financed out of the general revenues rather than the Medicare trust fund, which is a good thing. Um, and it also says that he would primarily raise uh, taxes on those earning a million dollars on by raising their capital gains tax. And so that's allegedly where the funding will come from. Whether it's sufficient to cover that population remains to be seen. According to Avalier, close to 23 million will become newly eligible by moving the age bracket down to 60. Of those, about 13.4 are currently covered by employer-sponsored coverage. We'll talk about in a moment why that population may not be interested in moving over to Medicare. But we also want to talk about the unemployed market. Um, there's been some, he, he relates it really to the pandemic. And if you look at who's affected by the pandemic, um, it appears that um, this, the age group of 55 to 64 has actually seen the smallest climb in unemployment between January to June. Uh, and that was from 3% to 9%. So most of those that are uninsured or newly uninsured because of new unemployment are not in that age group. Age group, And so again, we just need to look at other options for that age group who are now uh, don't have coverage because of a, a loss of um, a job during the pandemic. So um, if we look at Medicare, it's not going to predominantly be from the unemployed. It will likely be mostly from those that already have employer-sponsored coverage. One way that they, one reason why they may not be interested in moving over to Medicare is because of employer prescription coverage is typically better than what you'll find under Medicare. The formularies are usually broader, the co pays are typically lower, 
And because prescription is usually one of the biggest costs for those on Medicare and that age group, I think you'll find that some of those that are newly eligible would not be interested in moving over um, from employer-sponsored coverage to Medicare. But that really brings us to the next topic of Biden's plan, which is to expand Medicaid for low-income Americans. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, and this really may be hitting more of that uninsured market. Um, and so this, this is good to hit the other end, I guess you can say, from an income perspective on those that may be hit hardest by the pandemic. Um, there's not, again, a lot of information. Uh, the plan states that there will be premium-free option for the expansion population in states that have not expanded Medicaid after the passage of the ACA. If you recall, uh, the ACA expanded uh, Medicaid, and there was a lawsuit that said that they really couldn't force states to expand. And so you had about 14 states that refused to expand Medicaid. And right. so in those 14 states, the Biden plan would allow a premium-free option for uh, Medicaid for that expanded population. And then they will also allow the states to offer that as well that has that have already expanded. So it's not clear how that will be funded. We don't know if um, that will be funded through taxation or what. Um, in addition, Biden says he's going to bring back the individual mandate and he's going to expand subsidies in the individual market. Again, that's helpful for those that are unemployed. Um, and he's going to do that in a number of ways. Number one is he's going to have an income. He's going to increase the income cap on eligibility. So more people will be eligible for a subsidy. He's then going to lower the cost of coverage. It, if you remember a subsidy, the amount of the subsidy is tied to uh, a percentage of your income. And the idea is that we don't want anyone paying for coverage more than a certain percentage of income. Anything over and above that, the government picks up in the form of a subsidy. Right now, it's tied to 9.8% of income at the highest level, um, and that would be reduced to 8.5% of income. And then finally, he would increase the amount of the credit um, that's offered by tying it to the gold plan. Right now, it's tied to the silver plan. So if you tie it to a more expensive plan in the marketplace, then you have more available credit coming to you. And you don't have to enroll in that gold plan. You can enroll in a cheaper plan and still have the, the value of that credit coming to you um, up to the amount of the cost of your plan. Obviously, you're not gonna have money over and above that. There's also some prescription drug reform in his plan that's beyond what we can tackle today, um, but just know that he's, he's tackling that as well. So just kind of some high level um, input on you know, what, what's included in his plan. Yeah, and you can really see the uh, preservation of the ACA and some of those points you just addressed, right? And that's kind of, what we would expect from Biden, who, as you mentioned up front, was sort of part of the ACA enactment and process back in 2010. Uh, but overall, Suzanne, what are your thoughts on uh, Biden's plan, particularly as compared to the employer-sponsored insurance market? Well, I, you know, I do. What I would like to see is more is, is more focus on supporting the employer-sponsored market. When you look at the Medicare and Medicaid systems there's some concern because they've both been impacted by the pandemic due to a loss of revenue, both at the federal and the state level. The Congressional Research Service projected that Medicare would become insolvent by 2026. When you factor in the pandemic, they now say that there's a revenue gap that would make it insolvent as early as 2020, which is this year, um, uh, you know, to 2023. So apparently the pandemic has hit Medicare significantly. And then when you look at the states, states uh, say that they are projecting a 10% reduction in revenue in 2020 and up to 25% in 2021. So again, uh, the financial um, 
solvency of the Medicaid system is in question with the loss of revenue at the state level. So for a number of reasons, we really want to look at the employer-sponsored market as a market that needs to be sustained and supported. And part of that, I will say, is because uh, you know employers spend less on average than the Medicaid system per person and, and up to 60% less. And so that could be due to the risk of the Medicaid population, but it could also be due to just a government waste and lack of innovation in that market. Um, also, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employers contribute on average 79% of a worker's premiums towards single coverage. So again, you have the, the employer market right now really subsidizing the coverage in the employer-sponsored market. When you take that away, you're going to push it all into the federal government. And uh, that's a significant push. So you, we really want to bolster up that employer-sponsored market because we do have significant subsid subsidizing that's occurring from employers. Um, also, it dominates the private insurance market. It accounts for over 90% of that market. And so you don't want to damage that market in any way um, by some of your other efforts in the Medicaid, Medicare system, or public option. I will say also, I think that employer-sponsored coverage is a model for innovation that you won't see by the government, especially when you look at self-insured plans that have a vested interest in making sure that their healthcare costs are lowered. So you, you could expect more innovation overall, which is good for not only the country, but good for uh, individuals as well. And then finally, surveys show that employees are generally satisfied with their health insurance plan through their employers. Um, a recent study by AHIP said that over 70% fell into that category with their main drivers of employee satisfaction being that their health plans were comprehensive, they were affordable, they had choice with their providers, their consistency, there was plan consistency, and they had some free preventive care. So um, all in all, those are just reasons why we want to support that employer-sponsored market and um, because it's really beneficial for the country as a whole. Right. So some really good statistics there and studies showing the support for the employer-sponsored model, Suzanne. Thanks for sharing those. Another way that we're still monitoring and hoping that uh, Congress will act is with respect to subsidizing COBRA. Right. Part of the phase four discussions in Congress. Obviously, Congress on recess now, so we probably won't hear anything on this until September. Uh, but that would be another way similar to the 2002-2009 economic downturns where perhaps those who have lost employer coverage uh, could get some help continuing through COBRA. So thank you for outlining uh, Biden's plan here for us and giving us some more details and some things to think about. Any other closing thoughts here, Suzanne? No, we, we will be watching and, and updating certainly all of our, our materials. Um, and so just watch for things. If you have any questions, certainly go to your NFP uh, consultant and ask them. We have a, a whole group of very talented individuals who are answering questions from our clients. Um, and so we are just, we're here to support you. And, and with that, we thank you for joining. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. As I, we like to say, that's, that's a wrap. wrap.